WLRN Edition 80. Broadcasting in 3, 2, 1. I was born woman. Off my knees I will stand for my liberation. Sisters rise again. I was born woman. Off my knees I will stand for my Greetings and welcome to the 80th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, December 1st, 2022. I'm Emily Fay, WLRN's newest member, taking over the world news segment for the legendary sister Emily Ann Lorenzen. As a longtime listener of WLRN, I'm honored and excited to be working with this collective to produce women's media. This month's edition focuses on digesting, analyzing, and learning from the Kelly J. Keene Standing for Women USA Tour that took place October 16th through November 14th in cities across America, including San Francisco, Tacoma, Chicago, Miami, and New York City. WLRN live-streamed events from the tumultuous Tacoma where April Morrow of the organization Sovereign Women Speak had her hand crushed and broken by a male counter-protester and also from Miami, where the brave women led by Alexandra Renee, a.k.a. Pinwheel Art, stood out front of Dr. Sive Gallagher's plastic surgery office, where she performs hundreds of mutilating surgeries on both minors and adults every year. To see those WLRN live streams, go to WLRN's YouTube channel and click on the Live tab. Today we'll hear an excerpt of Thistle speaking with Kay Yang and Amanda Stolman, organizers on the ground in New York City on November 14th, where nine counter-protesters were arrested by NYPD. We will also hear April Morrow tell WLRN what it was like to be surrounded by counter-protesters in Tacoma with no police protection as she was attacked and thrown to the ground. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. To start off today's edition, we turn to WLRN's World News segment with yours truly. A Norwegian man who identifies as a disabled woman was positively profiled on Good Morning Norway last month. Joran Victoria Alme, who was born male and able-bodied, recounted how as a young child, after witnessing a classmate using crutches, he became overcome with jealousy. Professional journalists and anonymous Twitter users alike have taken issue with Alme claiming to be disabled, while affirming his claim to be a woman. Following public outrage to the interview on Good Morning Norway, Norway's TV2 News aired a rebuttal profiling four disabled women who took issue with Alme using a wheelchair. Alme began using a wheelchair five years ago, claiming it eases the symptoms of his body integrity identity disorder. Although he is adamant he does not use resources intended for disabled people, Alme uses a wheelchair almost all of the time. Agnes, Alme's wife of over 30 years, ended their relationship twice, but both times was persuaded to stay with help from the couple's therapist. 
Alma continues to work in finance for a major Swedish bank. In Argentina, a trans-identified man is facing federal charges of human trafficking and attempted murder. Daniel Ariel Araya Segura, who goes by the alias Paloma Leon, was charged with sexually victimizing 30 people, including children, as well as the attempted murder of one of his victims. In December 2020, the National Program for the Rescue of Persons Victimized by Trafficking hotline received a call from an anonymous person claiming Segura was sexually enslaving people, including women, children, and trans-identified males in a house he owned. The caller said the victims were under constant surveillance, threatened, and forced to perform sexual acts for men 24 hours a day. A police wiretap revealed that Segura and his accomplices, another trans-identified man and his male partner, were controlling between 7 and 10 trans-identified men, forcing them to perform sexual services. After two more calls with information from victims, police gathered enough evidence to conduct a series of raids and arrested Segura and his two male accomplices. A month after the arrest, one of Segura's victims, who had been present at one of the raids, was shot in the neck and survived hours after receiving a threatening phone call from Segura in jail. Segura previously had spent 18 years in prison for murder and was released in 2006. In Spain, transgender activists made violent threats against two psychologists that resulted in their newly published book becoming the fourth best-selling book in Spain for 24 hours in all categories. Dr. Jose Arasti and Mario Perez Alvarez co-authored the book, Nobody is Born in the Wrong Body, The Success and Misery of Gender Identity, which was published in February this year. Immediately following the book's release, transgender activists began sending violent threats to the authors. In Barcelona, an event promoting the book's release was canceled after trans activists threatened to burn down the bookstore where it was to be held. Speaking to Redux, Dr. Jose Arasti says every time there has been an incident, it has caused a significant increase in book sales. He goes on to say, in fact, the highest moment of book sales occurred as a result of what happened in Barcelona, where our book trended as the fourth best-selling book in Spain in all categories for 24 hours. On November 19th, a man shot and killed five people at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs. At least 25 other people were also injured in the shooting. The man, Anderson Lee Aldrich, identifies as non-binary. Despite Aldrich's legal team filing court documents stating their client wishes for people to use they-them pronouns in reference to him and use the honorific mix in place of Mr., trans activists rushed to cast doubt on the validity of Aldrich's non-binary identity. Natalie Bingham, a trans-identified male and friend of one of the victims, stated while being interviewed for CNN that, quote, it was obvious, unquote, Aldrich was a man because he looked like a man. Many trans activists have pointed out that Aldrich's family members did not refer to him with they-them pronouns on social media, which they say is proof his non-binary identity is merely a legal maneuver. Aldrich is expected to be formally charged with first-degree murder and a possible hate crime on December 6th. Many patrons of the club on the night of the shooting were not members of the gay or trans community, but had attended the evening to see a drag show. The victims of the shooting were two women and three men, two of whom were trans-identified. Two of the victims were bartenders at Club Q. A 19-year-old male named Brian Nguyen was awarded the title of Miss Greater Dairy 2023, the first trans-identified male to win a title awarded by the National Miss America Organization. 
Nguyen, who's only been active on social media since March of 2021, calls himself a plus-size model and advocate for marginalized women in his Instagram profile, where he posts photos of himself in women's clothing. These posts draw overwhelmingly negative comments. Not only did Nguyen win the title of Miss Greater Dairy, but he also won a scholarship intended to support young women. He will serve as Miss Greater Dairy for the next year, as well as be eligible to compete for Miss New Hampshire. Online responses to his win have largely been negative. In October, a trans-identified man from Thailand bought the Miss Universe contest with many news outlets declaring him the first woman to own the 71-year-old company previously owned by Donald Trump. Miss Universe has allowed trans-identified males to compete since 2012. In November, a federal appellate court ruled that the Miss United States of America contest had the right to restrict males from competing after a trans-identified man used an Oregon state anti-discrimination law as the basis of a lawsuit to include him in the pageant. As part of the Kelly J. Keene Standing for Women USA Speakers Corner Tour, women gathered in Tacoma, Washington for a women's free speech event. April Morrow, organizer with Sovereign Women Speak, was injured by Elijah Lane, a counter-protester who grabbed onto her hand and crushed it while she was trying to prevent him from stealing her phone. Counter-protesters showed up to the Tacoma event with signs that said things like, No turfs in T-Town and trans women are women. The anti-feminist protesters also chanted, Go home turfs, a common chant that was heard across America on KJK's tour. A prominent trans activist was found guilty of triple homicide in the state of California on November 16th. Dana Rivers, born David Chester Warfield, attended the Michigan Women's Music Festival as a protester at Camp Trans. His victims were regular attendees at the festival that was ended after 40 years in 2015, largely due to trans activism that led campaigns of defamation and economic boycotts of the festival. Charlotte Reed, Patricia Wright, and Denny Diambu Wright were murdered by Rivers in 2016 at their home in Oakland, California. On December 5th of this year, Rivers will appear before a jury with an insanity plea. If he is successful with his plea, it is unlikely he will be sentenced to prison, but would rather be locked up in a mental facility. The tides really began to turn last month and are expected to continue to shift into 2023. The New York Times published a story on November 14th about the dangers of puberty blockers to youth, and on November 29th, The Hollywood Reporter published an article reporting on the interview Helena Bonham Carter did with the UK Times, in which she supports J.K. Rowling having a right to her opinion without retribution and defamation. As the tide turns, sisters, stay strong in the struggle and upright on your turf boards. This is Emily Fay concluding WLRN's World News segment for this Thursday, December 1st, 2022. Share your news stories, announcements, and tips with us by emailing info at womensliberationradionews.com and letting us know what's going on. This is Joe Brew. You are listening to WLRN. Make an explosion And all those things I did 
That was my fight song from Rachel Platten. Keep steering those small boat sisters that make big waves for us to go turf in USA and beyond. Now we turn to an interview excerpt featuring Thistle in conversation with Kay Yang and Amanda Stallman about the last stop on the KJK Standing for Women, Let Women Speak USA tour in New York City on November the 14th. Thistle asks them about their experiences as organizers and police liaisons. To hear the entire conversation, go to WLRN's YouTube channel and click on videos and then live to find a live stream, unedited conversation in its entirety in which Amanda and Kay Yang explain in detail how they got permits, negotiated with police, and communicated with women coming to this last tour stop. In this clip, you will hear Amanda introduce herself and talk about her role as police liaison and permit holder for the NYC stop, and then Kay Yang jumps in to continue the conversation about this important work. Uh, my name is Amanda Stolman. I'm the USA Director for Keep Prison Single Sex, which advocates for single-sex housing in prison, same-sex searching, and campaigns for uh, data on um, crime and justice to be recorded by sex throughout the system. I became involved in on-the-ground activism on um, issues about uh, gender and single-sex spaces. I guess at the same time that Kay Yang did, uh, I was at the Women's Picket event as well and was part of the organizing group for a very particular uh, area, which was um, legal review of the written materials that were issued because that was, uh, that, that event was based on an executive order, which is kind of a weird animal in the legal world. It's uh, a little tricky to talk about it since it's not a law and it's not a regulation, kind of what is it, what does it mean? Um, so that was actually where I first, um, met Kay Yang, and then um, she was kind enough to invite me to her UN event earlier this year, so we've done um, several things together. Prior to that, um, my activism had actually been um, mostly in New York City in the late 1980s and early 90s on um, issues about uh, relating to AIDS, and in the early 2000s, I was a legal observer for several events in and around New York City, including the Republican National Convention that happened here um, and uh, other, other political um, and cultural uh, protests that were occurring. So uh, that's my, my background in terms of this issue and in terms of the types of events I attended and in what role. For the New York City Standing for Women, Let Women Speak event, honestly, the way I became police liaison was perhaps somewhat of an accident, even though I have in my other um, experiences had familiarity with that and interacted with police in a variety of roles, which is that at least in New York City, in order to put on an event like there was, requires a number of different types of permits. That's not the case in every state. It's not the case in every city. It is in New York. There are a multitude of permits and you have to deal with several different um, city agencies to do that. And one of them is the police department. So I was uh, tasked by the group um, and somewhat by default being the one uh, 
physically in New York City to actually um, wrangle the permits up, which led to my interacting with the police, which will often be the way that uh, if you are involved in this kind of activism, you will first uh, be encountering them, which is trying to work out physically where you'll be, what the parameters are, what kind of sound you're allowed to have, whether you can move down the street or you're stuck in one place. All of those uh, are issues that um, should be if you want to be visible and, and doing this in a way that ensures the police are on board should be worked out with them in advance. I know there was a lot of lead up work. And what I like to talk about is building relationships with specific officers and knowing a little bit about them and them knowing a little bit about you. Were you doing that kind of lead up work in your role as police liaison in New York City? Yeah, I mean, one of one of I know we're going to end up talking about sort of, you know, approaches to this kind of more broadly. But I think this informs this part of the discussion, which is my goal in in speaking with police um, as a police liaison for any event or action is to make it easier for them to help you than to not help you. So what what you need to do to make that happen depends on the situation. Or it may be to make it easier for them to ignore you if that's what you want to have happen too. You know, there's the flip side of that. Um, but in this case, we wanted them to help us more than not help us. So that does mean building a rapport, explaining what your goals are, highlighting what your concerns are, backing that up with documentation. We were fortunate in some ways of being the last event on the tour. Unfortunate in that it probably had whipped some people up into a frenzy by the time it got to New York. But fortunate in that we had newspaper articles, we had video footage, we had police reports, we had things that we were able to physically turn over to our main contact at the first precinct of the NYPD who governs this area. We were able to share with them documentation. We didn't seem hysterical. Um, it seemed very, uh, our concerns were, were rational and were supported. Everyone had homework in that we, in advance of our reaching out to the police, our organizing team had been looking at social media and seeing the accounts that might be interested in what we were doing. Um, and that was all shared with the police as well, who indicated they would be looking at that too. So providing information to make it easy for them to walk into the role of Okay, we may <laughs> we may not be so happy that you're here, <laughs> but um, you've kind of given us a uh, a roadmap of what we need to look at and what we might be expecting. So, Can I ask, did you have sit down meetings with specific officers or a sergeant or anything like that, or was it all through email that you were communicating? How did you communicate with the NYPD? By phone by email and in person at the precinct. New York City sound permits go through individual um, precincts. Each precinct is responsible for issuing a permit in their area. 
and there's a group within each precinct that does that, which is community affairs. So half the battle, especially in a bureaucracy like New York City, but this will be the case in other large cities as well, is figuring out who do I even need to talk to? Because some municipalities are better than others in terms of having information on their website to give you a roadmap as someone seeking a permit. New York isn't particularly good about that. You just have to keep calling and um, begging and pleading to be sent to the right person. Yeah, if I could jump in as a witness to the to the hoops that Amanda had to jump through to be able to get our permits, uh, it was a lot. It was crazy, especially on a short notice. Um, and as Amanda was pointing out, New York City has very particular terms, unlike other cities. Um, and pr- uh, public space is very hard to come there, come by there. It's all very occupied, in use, and under control. Um, so having those permits was essential to be able to make sure that we could actually have a demonstration without being shut down by the police for not being in the, you know, for doing something in a spot where we weren't allowed to do it. So, um, yeah, I just want to attest to how hard Amanda worked to get the permits and thank her for that work and let people know that it's not always as simple as just filling out a little form. (laughs) Um, Thank you for that. In most cities, I promise it's easier in most places. It it really is. In most places, it's easier. Yeah, Um, in Madison, I'll just say it's very easy to get a permit. There's a real dialogue and discussion that's starting to happen here in Madison, I, I, I'm hopeful that it's happening amongst the different types of police. Are there different types of police in New York City that you, you know, you talked about going to the precinct. Here in Madison, we have the Capitol Police, we have the University Police, we have the City of Madison Police. Mm-hmm. Was it all just NYPD? Like, which part of the police department were you dealing with exactly? So pre-event, we were dealing with well, let me back up because we had um, we had not one plan, not two plans, not three plans, but we had four <laughs> plans about where we wanted to be. And because uh, these permits get issued depending on your location, we were talking with a lot of different people. But um, if we if we just settle on where we ended up, uh, that ended up being um, the first precinct, but also. We um, we did have interactions with the municipal police, which are the ones who guard City Hall, because if you saw video of the event and you saw that nice green uh, park behind us that no one was on except periodically some officers standing there, those officers were municipal officers. So they're, they are detailed to City Hall specifically, uh, which was one of the reasons we had um, selected that area that there would be a multitude of police on site no matter no matter what one thing um and and i would say this too we actually we kept a running tally at some point and we uh, checked in with each other about who ended up showing up at the event these are not groups that we checked in with in advance but if you uh if you watch the videos that Kay Yang was taking and Amy Souza and other people um, were taking, 
you can see on the backs of uh, different police officers, uh, different names, and we count minimum six different kinds of units showed up. So yeah. there was a counterterrorism unit. There was a strategic, I can never remember the name of it. Strategic response group. Thank you, a strategic response group. S- minimum six. We were yeah, You had mentioned already the first precinct. Um, Amanda mentioned first precinct. You'd mentioned municipal. You just brought up counterterrorism, strategic response group. And then there's also um, TARU, which is the technical assistance response unit. And then there was another um, uh, uniform that said legal on the back that we weren't sure exactly what that meant, but... (laughs) They really took you seriously. And, you know, was this at an extra cost, like, to taxpayers? Did they have to have extra officers on duty that day to to do what they did? Well, what we had arranged and understood with the first precinct is that they would have an extra detail from the first precinct on site the morning of. And Kay Yang was there a few minutes uh, before I was. I had done a, a lap of the area in the morning just to make sure that our barricades were were on site, and and they were. And then I kind of skedaddled out of there to get my <laughs> signs and things um, until the 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 group had formed. So I I I, I will let Kay Yang explain a little bit about how that went. But those groups that we just named were not groups that we had had discussions with the first precinct about. Kay Yang will explain what it looked like when we first got there. And then I'll just jump ahead here for a moment, which is that they were um, severely, I'll call it understaffed, um, at the at the start of the event. Um, and it became clear that they were calling in more units from throughout the city as the event progressed. And you can see the point at which they had enough people on site to do the things that they had told us they would do from the beginning, which is if someone's using amplified sound and they don't have a permit, and we did for that space, you only get one at a time, that they would be given the boot, that if the protesters ended up essentially having their own protest there because they were so static in front of us that they wouldn't be allowed to do that. They were given a dispersal order, but we were pretty far into the event before that happened. And my take on that is they simply didn't have the personnel to effectuate those orders earlier in the event. Uh, There were just too many protesters. Did you negotiate with them details about what was, what the setup was going to look like? Like that barricade, for example, was that something that you negotiated with them about or did they just offer to do that? So to their, to their credit, in conversations that I had, they were sufficiently, adequately and appropriately I'm not going to say spooked. It's NYPD. They've seen a bunch of weird stuff. But they were um, sufficiently, I'll call it, uh, on alert about what had occurred in other locations, particularly Tacoma and Chicago, just the visual of everyone, like, right up in, you know, the participants' faces and ears with noise. So all of that was shared with them. And to their enormous credit, without 
by even having to ask, they were like, okay, we're going to have barriers. We're going to have an extra police unit. And then we kind of talked about details about that. How many people did we expect would be participating? So they knew a large barrier area. You know, I've in, in in looking at some of what Kay Yang has said about this, it seems like some of the police officers, some of the police force were resentful of you doing this demonstration because it, it was a lot of work. They had to like put up a barricade. They had to think about it. They had to be on alert. Did you feel like they were resentful of you or did you feel like they wanted to help and that they were you know, wanting to protect citizens in their right to free speech? So pre-event, I would say they wanted to ensure that public space was under control. Mm -hmm. And they were both saying this to me and I was saying this to them affirmatively, which is we understand protesters have a right to be there. Mm -hmm. I, well, I was not asking that they clear the space of anyone who didn't like what we had to say. And I was very clear about that we understood that. We understood that people have a right to be there and to say their piece. They don't have a right to use amplified sound. They don't have a right to encroach on our barrier. They don't have a right to set up their own event because we had the permit for that spot. So I, I wouldn't say, you know, they're not happy about it. It's, it is a bunch of extra work for them, but they they understood we had a right to do it and that we understood what the protesters had a right to do. And, you know, we weren't being unreasonable about that. I do want Kay Yang, though, to weigh in on her, since she was there at, when the police first got there and I was not, she had to deal with the uh, kind of cranky on the scene reaction in the moment. Yeah, and I also, I want to, <clears throat> like, sort of clarify, I think that the police were angry that they were going to have to deal with a lot of crazy TRAs, and the way that it came out was with some victim-blaming language, which I'm not surprised because that's the general language that's being used in society towards all of us women who speak up around this issue. So it's kind of ingrained now. <clears throat> um, so I don't think necessarily that the police were mad at us, but they were aware that because we were there, there was going to be a large counter protest presence and that those people were not going to be easy to deal with. So I'll back up a little bit and say, and this goes in tandem with this conversation about police liaisoning, we also, to create the safest event possible, um, we uh, worked with a private security company. So I contracted a security team of five private security and one of them to be in like a supervisor role to the rest of the security. Um, the supervisor arrived on the site hours before we got there. I was in communication with him via phone calls and text messages. He was scoping out the area and looking for any potential people that might be waiting to set something up to counter protest us. We had the private security team meet um, our organizing team, Sans Amanda, um, and actually, we Amanda and I discussed that maybe next time we would all arrive together just uh, for safety and for clarity purposes. 
But what we did this time was we arrived in advance, had the secu- had the head of the security team meet us at a nearby underground parking garage, walked to the city hall park. Um, when I got there, I did not see the officers set up. I didn't, I saw barricades, but they weren't set up, um, which is kind of typical for them to have barricades outside that park anyways. Um, so I saw them there and didn't see cops. I saw one officer in a uniform who was posted at the gate of city hall, which is also normal. There's always a cop there, um, you know, <clears throat> checking people as they go in and out because it is a securitized area. Uh, so I approached the gate and I approached the uniformed officer and I saw right away that there were, um, plain clothes officers there that were clearly for our event I shook hands with them, introduced myself to them, explained that um, Amanda was on her way, that she is the permit holder. I uh, introduced them to the head of our security team. I let them know right away that um, if they have any concerns about our group or anything that we're doing or anyone that's part of our group, that they could communicate that to me. Um, and that I would communicate that to our team and that when Amanda got there, she would fill the same role so that they knew I made it very clear to them. We're not here to cause any problems for you guys or make anything more difficult for you. We're here for a fully permitted event for an exercise of women's free speech. We're here to um, have women record their voices publicly. Um, Kelly J is making a documentary. We're not here to engage with counter demonstrators, though I know that they will be trying to engage with us. I let them know that our women have all been briefed on how we want them to de-escalate and disengage from protesters as much as possible. Um, and letting the police know right away that we were going to be responsible for the women that we invited to our event immediately gave them a sense of ease, right? They knew that we were going to cooperate and that they wouldn't have to be dealing with um, two groups of people who were having, who were meeting each other with the same level of opposition because we were not there to oppose the counter protesters. We were there for our mission and our goal, which was to let women speak. We need to form these relationships with police officers, with policymakers, the people who are in power and get on their good side so that we actually can, as citizens, protect our First Amendment free speech rights and get out on the street and not be, you know, mobbed by all these angry, violent men as we're just trying to state our opinions. You know, I mean, who knew it was going to turn into such a war on the streets like this? I'm so glad that the the New York City uh, or the NYPD and all of the different officers that you were dealing with took this seriously, looked into it, did some research on what had happened in other cities. And um, I think that you had a pretty good result. Well, I, I just have to say, I wouldn't say that they necessarily did the research on their own. Um, it was carefully handpicked and fed to them. Um, like Amanda meticulously like wrote up a number of different documents showing them this is what happened in this city. This is what happened in this city. Here are news articles about violence um, in Tacoma, in Portland, <clears throat> in Seattle. Um, so that was 
you know, they didn't necessarily do that research on their own. It was all by, by Amanda being proactive and making sure that that information got in front of them, which is a big part of what police liaisoning is all about. It's about um, communicating with the police and establishing a record and a narrative. Um, and I want to back up a little bit to what you were saying about Carrie's comment um, where uh, Carrie Bress said something, where is it here, that the police are... They're to protect private property. Yeah, and police don't exist citizens. to protect citizens. They exist to protect private property. Um, and I actually, I think that is in part true. That is part of why they exist institutionally, sure. And I don't think it's necessarily like a leftist view. I think it just is the reality of what... Um, you know, of policing, of the institution of police. And both, it, that can be true, and it's still true <clears throat> that we need to engage with the police, that we need to establish communication with them, that we need to establish a record, that we should be engaging <clears throat> with respect and not treating um, the officers like they're a monolith and that every single one is out to get us. Um, though we do know that corruption runs deep in the police and that, yes, some police are going to choose to lie. That's not going to be the same for every single cop. And there are a lot of police that are very concerned about this issue of gender identity, not just for um, their own selves, but for their children. So there is an opportunity as well to be um, peaking some of these cops. And we actually need cops to understand how violent and dangerous um, it potentially is for women and girls um, in a society where <clears throat> we don't have sex-based protections. It's actually important that some of the police understand that, understand the danger of it, and want to prevent um, violence from happening. Right. So and the more you build up that relationship and that rapport with individual officers and they know you and they respect you, um, the better the protection is going to be. Um, I wanted to go to a question from Lise here. Um, it, she says, were the police justified in not allowing and or escorting Kelly J. Keene through the crowd to speak at her own event? Has that ever happened in the history of NYC outdoor speakers events before? So this, an answer to this actually ties into the discussion that we were just having in terms of what are they there for? And literally, legally speaking, the Supreme Court has issued several decisions on this, um, which is that police have a general duty to the public. They do not have a specific legal duty to individuals. So if it explains a lot of behavior that happens at big events, if you think about it in those terms. So this question about were they justified in not um, escorting her through the crowd, which I would say is is the more accurate phrasing there. I know we were given sort of the and or, um, but it wasn't that they told her you can't go through. It was a little bit, you know, uh, I assume it was more, you know, at your own peril, we're not gonna help you. And uh, one would understand why one would not, you know, attempt to do that. Um, but if you, if you look at that encounter um, um, and how she has described that encounter, and then you look at the tail end of the event and the footage from Kay Yang and Amy Suzo when they were leaving, you can see that the police were escorting 
um, people off the site into the safety of their cars. And if you recall, their goal is to a general duty to the public and not to individuals. Okay, they want the event to be over. <laughs> They're going to help people make that happen by hightailing it out of there as safely yeah. as they can. It, it is not in, in their interest to not hasten the end of the event by bringing her in. <laughs> you know, that is not um, sort of keeping the, the peace by bringing Kelly J into the event. She correctly, I think, assessed that it would um, inflame the crowd. And um, the, the police were aware um, that we had a main speaker who was Kelly J. That was part of the information that we provided to them so that they, they were aware of potential concerns. Did that maybe backfire in the sense that that um, they were less likely to assist her? I, I doubt it. I don't think they they would have uh, gone out of their their way to try to get anyone into that situation, whereas they would try to get people out of it because that is helpful to them in ending the event <laughs> safely. Yeah, that's really well put, Amanda. Um, and that's another point that people should be aware of. We did negotiate with the police how we would leave and exit. There was actually a point in time where, um, and I've, I've, uh, I'm a um, pretty seasoned activist. I've been doing uh, boots on the ground activism and community grassroots community organizing for like 20 years around different issues. I started very young, getting involved politically, and so I and some might know I used to kind of be on the quote other side, and I've been in scenarios like what we witnessed on the other side of the barricade. I've been on that other side, and there was a point in time where I could tell that things were escalating to the point where we needed to start to plan our exit strategy, even though it wasn't our original plan. Originally, we planned to stay there until four o'clock and have women giving their speeches. But because, uh, you know, we had to be flexible in the moment, it was very clear that things had gotten so escalated that it was going to be unsafe if we did not start trying to vacate. So there was a moment in time, and it's even on camera, where uh, one of the police that I was liaisoning with, he started walking towards me, and I walked towards him at the same time, and I said to him, we need to start planning our exit strategy now. And he, he was like, yes. <laughs> so we had the same thought, and the thought was around keeping everyone safe. All right, ladies. Thanks again. Thistle, thank you so much for having us and all the work that WLRN does to raise the voices of women and make us heard. Thank you. I never trust a narcissist, but they love me. So I play them like a violin and I make it look oh so easy. Cause for every lie I tell them, they tell me three.
That was Taylor Swift with her song, I Did Something Bad. Now we turn to our final interview segment, Thistle did with April Morrow, organizer and founder of Sovereign Women Speak, a grassroots feminist organization that works to organize women in the Pacific Northwest. She spoke with Thistle about her experiences at the Tacoma, Washington stop of the Standing for Women USA Tour. April was an organizer for that stop and was live streaming that day. A 27-year-old male counter-protester named Elijah Lane crushed her hand while April held onto her phone in an attempt to keep the phone safe from theft. Here is April telling the story of what happened. Okay, so I've got April Morrow here with me on WLRN's Airwaves. And she is the founder and an organizer with Sovereign Women Speak, a feminist organization that works out of Washington State. She works with a lot of women in the Pacific Northwest, and she was an on-the-ground volunteer activist organizer for the Let Women Speak event that came through on the Kelly JK USA tour. Welcome, April. Thank you, Thistle. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so the the thing I'd like you to talk to us about today is specifically at the end of the event when your hand was crushed by one of the counter demonstrators. Let's just dive right into that right away. Like, where were the police? Who were you with? Why did that happen? Who did it to you? Sure, sure. Yeah, we were actually, uh, Kelly J had ended the rally. Things were just getting too crazy. There were threats being made. And I was on the outskirts because I was live streaming to the Sovereign Women Speak Facebook page. And so I didn't get the opportunity to speak. Everything was ended before that even happened. But what happened was I saw that all the women were leaving the big crowded area and I had some things inside of the mob that I needed to retrieve. And so I saw all the women coming out and I went into the center of that circle to grab my items. And as I did, I had about four or five guys just mob me and surrounding me and grabbing me and pushing me. And one reached their hand over to grab my phone and I took my left hand to try to beat him to it so that he couldn't steal my phone from me. And he just put his hand right over the top of mine and just crushed it and wouldn't stop until I would let go of the phone. So obviously I let go of the phone and I let out a big scream. And then he hurled me, he shoved me to the ground. And as I went to stand up, I, you know, I was in shock because this just came out of nowhere. Uh, and so I went to stand back up and of course, you know, I couldn't see a thing because I was in the middle of this big mob, but uh, one of our women ran after these two men. One of our women got great video footage of them and the, I was really in shock. So some of the women that I was with came over to me and took a hold of me and just cared for me and got me out of there. And I remember as what I remember the most was how many of those kids were laughing and applauding that I had been hurt. And the feeling that gave me as I was trying to escape these, this mob of children from the Tacoma art school, 
I just wanted out of there. When and they say just children, they were teenagers. Us. Were they teenagers? They were. However, there were parents there. There was the principal was there. There was uh, some TRAs and I think even some Antifa there. The man who broke my hand was 27 years old. His name is Elijah Lane. And he was arrested right there um, on, you know, the police finally did come after being called 23 times. Uh, they still did not come. The reason why the police finally came was because one of our women called the medics. And when the medics got called, the police finally came. When they when you say the medics, you mean city medics or? Yeah, the Tacoma ambulance, a uh, Tacoma med came out to check oh, out. Oh, right. My hand of course, because okay, and that's and... when the police came. OK, yes. But yes. up until that point, what had your contact been with the police? My understanding is that they had agreed to be there and to give you protection. Why weren't they there? Yes, so that is correct. I had spoke to the Tacoma police two weeks prior to Kelly's event, and they had told me that they would be on site, and they even gave me a number to call. And I did, along with several other women, and they did not show Okay, but didn't they say in some of your dialogues with them that they had um, undercover officers there? Did you see any undercover officers? Yes, a lot of us women were, we were, you know, suspicious that some of these men down on the ground, not up on the steps, but down on the ground were undercover police officers. And I had walked up to a couple of them and asked them if they were police and they said no they were not that they were just security they were they were the school the tacoma art school security and they did nothing either and the principal did nothing while these children were came unhinged on yeah. old, older you know most of us were older women yeah we have younger women but most of us are grandmothers and mothers and oh it was it was pretty awful it was yeah. You know, what, what surprises me is that Tacoma's close to Seattle. And in 2020, the Seattle police were incredible. Yes, and, they were. And, and so I am a little bit like taken aback that they would lie and that they, um, yes, yes I am too. Until the ambulance was called like what, yeah, what because... is going on with that? Has there been a change in politics? I mean, or maybe the Tacoma police are that different than the Seattle police. I don't know if you can comment on that. Well, what's really upsetting about it is that I originally was going to hold it in Seattle. And then there was fear that the Seattle police would not be present. And so we held it. In why Tacoma. was that? Why was that a fear? Because I called the Seattle police and spoke with them. And they and didn't seem like they would. They would not. Did you reference, when you talked to them, did you talk about February 2020 and the fighting the, the new misogyny event? Uh, I didn't because they just were not willing to work with me. They told me that it was a protest and that they could not. They didn't have the police force to to be there is what I was told. And with being told that I wasn't going to hold Kelly J's, you know, let women speak there. So I called Tacoma and I talked to the Tacoma police and I said, hey, is it possible? You know, I told them what happened in Port Townsend. I told them, you know, what was happening happening with, on the tour. OK, exactly. So they told me with that, yes, that they would be present. Gosh. And now you're trying to hold them to account for not yes, being I, present. I am. But I've also come to find out that that uh, precinct 
in Tacoma there with their chief of police uh, has done some lying. And he has, in the reports that he, that the police do with the crime that's taking place, he underplayed it. So Heather had sent me an article showing that the Tacoma, the chief of police, the Tacoma chief of police, what a little gem I have now that I can take with me, because this man is downplaying the crime that he is responsible for. So, yeah, way to go, April. Um, that's amazing work. And it takes a lot of courage to continue speaking out in public. And um, I just want to thank you for coming on the show today and sharing your very personal story about what happened in Tacoma and also your work as a police liaison for, for the event. So thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. This. 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 This is WLRN. 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 Women's Liberation Radio News. Women's Liberation Radio News. Women's Liberation Radio News. Women's Liberation Radio News. I could take this opportunity to just sing the praises of the KJK USA tour. That's what I do after all. I'm a songbird who draws nectar from the thistle flower to shower the power of my love for our womankind across the land. But alas, my wings are heavy and the field is ablaze and my gaze and haze prevent me from praise and bring me rather fully billed to the bathhouse with my lover who comforts me as I smolder in the rage of ages of women standing up, sitting down, walking away, screaming at each other, swatting each other down like flies. But there are a few strong shoulders lifting us up too. Kelly J has strong shoulders. She lifted us up. So for her, yes, I sing praises. But as for the rest of ya, we got a lot of shit to shovel on this here USA ship and our captains are too often held captive below deck for no good reason. It was refreshing when Kelly J, on a free speech for all women mission, literally included all women who showed up to any one of her tour stops. Very cool. What KJ created for us was the opportunity to see what it would be like if we could let go of our petty squabbles and differences all the while balancing that letting go with careful planning, astute observations, boundaries, and solid split-second decision-making to create a dynamic, democratic, and grassroots women's space on the streets. She demonstrated for us USA-based organizers how we can create a more equalized playing field for the women who show up and assert themselves. That's what I did at the Chicago stop here in the Midwest. I showed up and I asserted myself. When I first arrived on the scene, the TRAs still had not gotten there. I approached the small group of organizers with the giant adult human female banner I store at WLRN Studios that was requested for the Chicago stop 
Kelly J was setting up equipment and walking around and the police were there with horses dressed up for Halloween. One was supposed to look like a giraffe, I think. It was cute, but they were hardly riot cops and there didn't seem to be that many of them. I was surprised when the TRAs showed up with their huge banner that said, TERFs, fuck off, with the word TERFs in shit brown, of course, and fuck off in their signature baby blue and pink. I was surprised not by the lack of creativity in their message, but that they were able to use that banner to physically harass organizers and the women setting up equipment for far too long before someone or someone's intervened. I'm not sure if it was police, security, and or assertive women on our side who stopped them from using their banner as a weapon of assault. Overall, I observed the police and or private security on the KJK Let Women Speak Tour be outnumbered by the trans activists, or not even show up as was the case in Tacoma, or not be prepared enough to take appropriate action to separate the two groups physically from one another so as to enable true free speech. At the very last tour stop on November 14th in NYC, There were nine arrests made by the most prepared police and security force we saw probably on the whole tour. Please check out my full discussion with Amanda Stillman and Kay Yang about police liaison work in the context of the last tour stop on the Standing for Women USA tour. You can find that discussion on WLRN's YouTube channel under the live videos tab. Be sure to pardon my flub-ups and the tech difficulties and watch it till the very end to hear about those nine arrests and what they meant on that day. But getting back to what I witnessed in Chicago, one of the disruptors had a kitchen pot and was banging it with a stick right up into the ears of women setting up and chatting before the event began. I saw the pot banger get really close to Kelly J at one point and I was like, whoa, that was too close. But then quickly, people surrounded the disruptor and KJK was kept safe. Then, volunteers were recruited to hold the giant adult human female banner, the police bicycle circle was set up as a barricade, and I started roaming around just checking out the scene. I saw Jay Thomas roaming the scene too, with her cell phone out and video camera on at all times. She's one smart lady, that Jay Thomas. Soon after the Chicago stop on the tour, she tweeted close-up footage of one of the men near the Turf's Fuck Off banner wearing brass knuckles, ready to smash someone's jaw or worse. Unfortunately, even with Jay Thomas completely on her toes with the camera, dude never took off his mask, so it's hard to see who he was. But he was a he, and he had on brass knuckles at the Let Women Speak tour stop in Chicago. Good job, Jay Thomas. She regularly models for us what boots on the ground activists can do to be the media, to create a record of these important details about so-called trans activists and activism. We need to record and document every step of the way on this journey, my friends, because the global media blackout on this issue runs rampant, as do lies in the media about who we are as women. They call us bigots, cunts, and other clearly misogynistic names that take hold in the public mind and turn the public against us. 
it is up to us to counter their smear campaigns and co-create our stories and movement. What an honor it is to be part of this spinning and weaving across the USA in our sisterhood. May our webs glimmer in the moonlight and may all the spider women across the country unite. Oh, USA women, oh, that we could unify, lift each other up more, and come together in our power. KJK showed us the way to do this by coming here and modeling the attitude and behavior that turns ordinary women into extraordinary goddess warriors. I am happy to follow her lead as best I can. After roaming around just checking out the scene in Chicago, I asserted my way through the crowd of screaming TRAs with their noise-making devices and obnoxious signs, through the police barricade of bicycles around the speakers, and to the mic. Nobody on the sidewalk could hear what the speakers were saying except for the small group of speakers who stood in a cramped circle inside of the police bicycle barricade. Fortunately though, the sound and picture were good for the viewers online. The passers-by on the sidewalk were confused about what was going on and our lack of flyers to hand them with succinct info was a forgotten task that, combined with not being able to hear the speakers for all the noise, left most puzzled, which was a shame. Meanwhile, on the sidewalk nearby, artist Erica Bondokar and a friend who wishes to remain anonymous created a giant Venus symbol made of red rose petals they lovingly donned upon the pavement and that a counter-protester tried to destroy. He came running up to this piece of art like I've witnessed many a child running up to another child's block structure with the intent to destroy. This male protester managed to misplace a few petals with his first kick as he ran across the pavement. The police thankfully stopped him from taking another pass at it and the Venus symbol remained on the sidewalk after I pushed back the petals dude had kicked through and scattered. The recording of my speech that came out on the live stream that I watched afterward was muffled and out of sync in the final version left up on the internet. I felt cursed after seeing that, but also elated that with so many strikes against me and all the, of the women moving through the TRAs, the noise and the police line to speak, that we did it. I was elated that I spoke my truth even though my voice shook and my heart ached with the rage of so much injustice, humiliation, and pile-on. Despite emergency siren sounds, TRAs banging pots and pans, and the cramped conditions we were speaking under, one Chicago woman's speech stands out and her voice did end up being synced up with the picture on the live stream. She also knew better than to scream into the mic which helped her voice ring out, but not overwhelm. This was a hard task because with all of the external noise around you that your ears are picking up, you instinctively want to yell above it, but it's actually best to stay as calm as possible and speak clearly and calmly into the mic. And that is what she did. She wishes to remain anonymous, but a young woman from the Midwest got up at the Chicago stop and really spoke truth to power for the five minutes she was up there. Her speech was just replayed on WDI's Feminist Question Time this past weekend because it was so good. I hope it makes it into KJK's documentary. One of the things she said as the sirens were blaring was, It's not easy getting up here and speaking your mind, but it feels great and nothing is going to stop me. I'd rather be rude than a fucking liar. 
which was a hats off to the late great Magdalene Burns who said that years ago in the face of accusations that it's rude to stand up for lesbian rights. At the end of the day, at the after party in Chicago, I got to sit at the table right in front of Kelly J and the young woman who gave that riveting speech. By far the best part of the tour for me was getting to sit there and discuss our movement with KJK and the sisters all around that table. I got a nice pic of Kelly and me with her holding up my music CD, Spinning and Weaving, that I put out this year in conjunction with Liz Miller's feminist anthology by the same name. I proudly have that pic as my profile picture on Facebook now. It was such an honor to meet you, Kelly J. To end today's commentary, I will read from my Chicago speech in its entirety with a few modifications for this podcast. Here we go. I've been shamed, defamed, and tossed out into the rain. My pain shatters the sidewalk and I grow up through the cracks like a weed. I cry, my tears mixing with the drops falling from the sky. Why? Because I dare to share that trans is a lie. Moving forward slightly, I look up. The rain turns to snow. Oh, is it time to go? No. I can't. My roots grow deeply, penetrating this Midwestern soil, the toil of aging dreams screaming in the background. I was a singer once. I held my hand to the mic and my voice was gold. But that was all before. Before dozens of creeping spoilers spoiled my toil with their wet dreams. Me holding fast to a sign saying, Don't believe the hype. Trans activism is misogyny. Holding fast to the light of truth, holding fast to my own dignity and willful well-being as I gasped in the muck. Fuck. All of this must just be a nightmare, a terrible dream I will wake up from. This is my home. It's where I belong in song and in open dialogue with my fellow dwellers upon this land. Where do you stand, with or against women? Where do you stand, good people of this land, of the Great Lakes region, of our sacred waters, Mishigami? I salute you. It's clear from the weather that things will go better if we stick together, which is why I am here. Though the pains of growing tall, a spiky plant shedding her seeds in the fall, show like stretch marks on a woman's body after giving birth. I am not unscathed. I am a wounded warrior enlivened and enraged for our cause of freedom from male tyranny. Hi, I'm Thistle Pedersen, founder of WLRN, a monthly podcast modeled after NPR's All Things Considered and Amy Goodman's Democracy Now!, featuring world news, commentary, interviews, and music. Our collectively created show comes out every first Thursday of the month. We've been doing it for six and a half years, and we haven't missed one month. Born of Cancellation by WORT 89.9 FM in Madison, where I was banned from that public access volunteer-run community radio station for interviewing lesbians and feminists on the Access Hour program a few times. WLRN is going strong. It is my weed growing up through the cracks. 
We have had over 30 volunteers and members since our start in May of 2016. These women include Sekhmet Shiawal, Jenna DeQuarto, April Knoll, Julia Beck, Donna Vitalisova, Emily Ann Lorenzen, Katina Hyman, and Aurora Linnea, just to name a few. More recently, Emily Fay and Margaret Gohn have joined the team. There is something for everyone and anyone, as long as you are female, to do for your community radio station in the Femisphere, WLRN. So volunteer with us. We're always looking to expand our ranks and reach. In addition, we've been organizing our own Speaker's Corner events in the Midwest, inspired by Kelly J. Keene and Venice Allen of Standing for Women. To learn more about our next Free Speech for Women events, contact us at WLR News for Women. I'm also a singer-songwriter who used to play with my own band around Madison at different bars, coffee houses, and neighborhood centers. Dumpster Dick, a punk band fronted by an AGP male and other AGP males in Madison who stalk and harass me from Trans Advocacy Madison, an online hate group, destroyed my reputation and now I no longer get to play music. Not only that, these men stalk and harass me at my places of employment and even at my own home in Madison. I don't know who it was, but someone or a group of someones placed a sticker on the front door of my apartment building that said, FART, Feminism Appropriating Reactionary Transphobe. I scraped off the first one with a razor blade, but didn't have the patience to do it with the next one they slapped on there. So I blacked it out with a Sharpie, where now it stays, reminding me and all of my neighbors every day when we enter the building that a, quote, transphobe lives here. I recently lost my job I had for four years because TRAs targeted and publicly threatened my place of employment for knowingly hiring a, quote, transphobe. Finally, I want to leave you on a positive note. Not everyone hates me. There are some special sisters in our sisterhood who have really lifted me up through the years. The WLRN sisters that I mentioned earlier, and Liz Miller, editor of the feminist anthology Spinning and Weaving. She commissioned me to write a song and get it professionally recorded to celebrate the release of her book. I named the song after her book and was able to release a whole album of music by the same name this past spring. Thank you for supporting independent, canceled, and banned grassroots feminist music. Thank you, Chicago. And thank you, dear listeners. Licking my fingers as I put honey in my tea. Isn't it funny how everything's changing? Yeah, humanity is rearranging, it seems. And so is the storm The earth is worn down I am a forlorn clown Cleaning up the city Ooh, isn't it pretty? All the passers-by My how time flies In the eye of the This is Jenna, jumping in to second what Thistle said about supporting independent, cancelled feminist music. 
Her album Spinning and Weaving has been reviewed by Renee Gerlich, Lear Keith, and Anita Stewart of Rock at Night. It is a valiant piece of art that every feminist should have in her music collection. We'll leave instructions for how to purchase Thistle's newest album in the written post beneath the podcast. In the eye of the Thanks for listening to WLRN's 80th edition podcast reflecting on and digesting the Kelly J. Keene Standing for Women USA Let Women Speak Tour. WLRN would like to thank our guests this month for sharing their views with us. Thank you so much to Amanda Stullman, Kay Yang, and April Morrow for speaking with WLRN. Until next time, this is Thistle signing off on another edition of our monthly show. If you like what you are hearing and would like to donate to the cause of Feminist Community Radio, please visit our WordPress site and click on the Donate button. Check out our merch tab to get a nice gift in exchange for your donation. And if you are interested in joining our team, we are always looking for new volunteers to conduct interviews, write blog posts, post to our Facebook and other social media pages, and do other tasks to keep us moving forward as a collective of media activist women. Thanks for listening. This is April Now, signing off for now. This is Jenna. Thanks for tuning in. Next month, we will focus our program on the top stories and events of 2022. Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of the month, so look for it on Thursday, January 5th, 2023. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when each podcast, music show, and interviews are released, please sign up for our newsletter on the WLRN WordPress site. Stay strong in the struggle, and thanks for listening. This is Aurora signing off on another edition of WLRN's monthly handcrafted podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Spinster, Overit, and SoundCloud in addition to our WordPress site. Thank you so much for listening. And this is Emily Faye, newest member of the team now heading our world news department. Our monthly podcasts are always crafted with tender, loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide. Thanks for your support. We would love to hear from you, so please share, like, and comment widely. Home.